0: Open up to John chapter 19 at this time. And you're welcome to pull out the worship notes that are found in your bulletin. My family and I just got back from a exceedingly restful time up at Yosemite. Some people get tired out by being outdoors in the dirt, cooking, cleaning. Well, not really cleaning, because you don't clean, but some that sometimes that stresses people out. That somehow relaxes me and parts of our family. So um we're just we're excited to be back and we we missed you last week for sure um we were we were out of cell phone range out of uh technology range kind of our family rules we tend to unplug the the whole time that we're out there and uh we try to go camp places where other people are unplugged so it doesn't feel like the city that we're trying to leave and um Every other day or so, we'd drive our car, we'd, we'd, we'd go down into Yosemite Valley and go do some hiking, go do some biking, looking around and whatever. And as you come into the valley, um, all the cell phones in the car start to chirp, like, we're awake, we're alive again, you know, and you basically have coverage kind of right through the, the, the valley floor there. And uh, one of the nephews that was with us um, was super excited because that meant that he got to text all of his buddies. Now, let me ask you a quick question. How many of you like to receive a text message? Raise your hand if you like to receive a text message, okay? How many of you don't like to, to receive text messages? I know of at least one. I know one person in this room who says, don't ever text me because I don't have a plan, and that costs me a quarter every single time. <laughs> so knock it off. Um, some love it. Some some don't love it. Here's what was here's what was striking me as, as I thought about this. I... Um, I took Psalm 119 this, this week while we are on vacation. I just meditated on Psalm 119. I kept reading it. And I'd read a little section of it and just think on it that day. And, and then I would go out and do some amazing hike and see these incredible views and worship God in that way. And, and then I would come back to Psalm 119. And for most of you, most of you probably know this, but Psalm 119 is just this, this song that talks about how amazing it is to have God's Word. And how how this psalmist, this one who wrote this song, just wants to meditate on it day and night. And he wants to fill his life with it. And he's so thankful for it. And he just gives praise to God for it. And I think about this. I think about how often the Bible sits in my hand and I take it for granted. I came back this week so thankful that we have a Bible church here. To come and to hear from God's Word and to learn from it. And to place our lives under the authority of Scripture and not to somehow do the opposite of that. And I want to continue to walk toward that and strive for that. And somehow reading Psalm 119, what, what that does, it gives you a new language to your prayer life even. Because my prayers start to feel stale sometimes. I say the same things and I'm just reading a different way of saying it. And it was so majestic for me to sit in a dirty camping chair sitting in the middle of the woods reading Psalm 119 and being excited about the Bible and about God's word. And as I saw my nephew be so excited to suddenly be able to text, I thought, man, I wonder what it would be like for us if for some reason, some way, we didn't have access to a Bible for a little while. And for a couple days, we were unplugged from the Bible. And it was away from us. We didn't have our little e-Bible on our iPhone. We didn't have a physical Bible. All we had was what was in our heart and, and memorized it. I wonder how it would be when suddenly we got back to access the Bible. If like that text message to this high school kid, it would just be like, yes, I get to hear from God. I get a message to me from God. Can't wait to get down to the valley where I have reception to get with God. And it was kind of convicting to me as I sat there and thought about that. But that's what this is, this book that we're about to look at. And we're we're going to move on in in John this morning. But but before we do, I just want to set that framework that, that this is a message from God to us preserved in our hands that we, most of us in this room, probably have several copies of sitting around our house. And here we have an opportunity this morning to open it up and with reverence to read and to discover and to ask God, God, would you... Would you show me who I am in light of your word? Our family listened to parts of James on the way out of the valley one day, and it said this, let's not be like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, walks away and forgets what he looks like, but let's take what we hear and let's do it. Let's show our faith by the actions that we have. On that note, John chapter 19, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we don't don't worship the Bible. We worship the God that the Bible speaks about. But we're mindful this morning of the fact that in this book, it's more than ink and paper and letters strung together. It's alive and it's powerful. And this morning, I just want to start by thanking you for that, praising you for that. In your mystery and in your infinite wisdom, you've preserved it for us and and shown us who you are by its pages. And as we read an account that maybe for those of us who've grown up in church is really familiar. God, would you just rip us away from yawning through this? Would you show us something of yourself this morning? Amen. Children, by raise of hands... How many of you got in trouble this last week for something that you did? My kid's hand shot right up. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, You can put your hands down again. We won't go into detail about what it was that you got in trouble for, but probably most of you didn't have a perfect week, right? You broke something. You spilled something. You sassed mom or dad. Maybe you whacked someone or something you shouldn't have. I don't know. But all of us get in trouble. My childhood was filled with memories of getting in trouble. And a part of of what your parents' job is, is to train you and to discipline you. And what they're hoping and praying, like I am for my kids, is that this harvest of righteousness, good things, is going to come out of all of that. The Bible even says this, discipline at the time is no fun. None of you guys like being disciplined, right? No, it's no fun at the time. But somewhere down the road, what we're hoping and praying is that from this discipline, good things is going to come. A good big harvest of righteousness. Now, I have, uh, in my earlier days, been sitting around the dinner table and minding my own business, doing whatever I'm doing, eating my dinner. And I had spilled milk at my dinner table. And we had a round dinner table growing up, and we had four boys, and milk was constantly being spilled. And my poor mom, uh, many times, would uh, would jump up and have to clean up the, the milk. And there's a saying that says, don't cry over what? Spilled milk, right? What does that mean? What does it mean not to cry over spilled milk? Huh? Okay, it's not that big of a deal. It's done, right? I mean, once it spills, it's it's kind of like move on from there, right? We have, to, we have to, 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 to deal with it. But in our household, I don't know if it is the same in yours, but if you're an only child, you, you kind of get a bad deal on this part of it. But in our household, if something went wrong, if something spilled, if something broke, um, what would often happen is this kind of a thing. He did it. And I, would, I don't care which brother took the blame, as long as the finger wasn't coming my way. And so we started getting to the bottom of who did what. And Two brothers would come bickering to mom and dad, and we'd have to figure out you know, who's, whose fault it was, and who started what, and who hit who, and who called what what, and all kinds of fun stuff. I really did have a happy childhood, but this is just part of it. Um, but what happens is when, when someone comes in and, let's say, breaks your stuff, a natural response is this. I want to know who did this. That's a natural part of being a human being, right? Who did this? I saw a guy park this morning at Starbucks with a 1960 Corvette, cherry red and white, spotless. And you know how he parked? He didn't park in the regular way. He parked taking two spots. And as I walked by in my kind of banged up Jeep, I thought, man, I'm glad I don't have that car. Because I would constantly be worried about someone scratching it. But if, as I'm walking up, I see a guy sitting at Starbucks staring at the car. Guess whose car it was? His. He told me it took 10 years to get all the parts on that car right. You better believe he's going to sit and watch the car, right? But if he comes out to his car and there's a giant key mark all down the side of his 1960 Corvette, you you better believe he's going to want to know who did this to my car, right? We want to get to the bottom of it. We want to find out the blame. We want to find out who's responsible for this. Now, spilled milk is one thing. If someone spills milk, uh, you know, that's... You can clean that up. As someone said over here, it's no big deal. How about this? Ever see this kind of a sign on a freeway? This is what's known as the Amber Alert. And what they've discovered is that after a child has been abducted, that every single minute is absolutely precious. And probably one of the worst nightmares for any parent is to think about their kid being abducted. I'll tell you what happens when I see this sign as I'm driving down the road. I immediately lock in what the make and the model and the license plate of that car is, and I become a vigilante. I am driving down the road looking for this guy. I love this system because it immediately makes everyone aware something is going wrong. Someone has taken a child and it's last seen in this car. When you see this, As a human being, what you realize is you have a reaction to that, and you go, that is wrong. There's something about that that's broken, and I want to know who's responsible for it. It's one level to know who's responsible for tracking mud in the house, right? Mud can be cleaned up, not that big a deal. It's another thing to know who's responsible for taking this child, created in God's image, and yanking them away from their family and going to do do who knows what to them. All of a sudden, it becomes a really big deal to track this person down and to find out who it was. There's a saying that people use, and and there's actually a movie that came out not long ago talking about this. But there's a saying that people say when someone has been wronged in this way, and this is how wars perpetuate, but they say this, I want blood. That person took my kid, did this or that to them, I want their blood. I want payback. I want revenge. I want this to be made right. I'll tell you what that is. That's God's inborn sense of justice that he's imprinted on us. This morning, we're going to talk about really the biggest crime in all of history, and that is the killing of God's Son. And what I don't want you to miss is that just because it's in the Bible and we know kind of that it has a theological purpose, that we don't miss being in the moment. And watching this innocent person that Dennis talked about last week, Jesus Christ, being sentenced and being arrested and being mistreated. And as we see the story unfold, the problem is sometimes when it's really familiar, we lose the impact of it a little bit, I think. And we're going to read the passage in its entirety, but we're going to answer this question, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? We want to know. That's a big deal. And if you look at the Bible, all four of the gospel writers did this. They took the last week of Jesus' life and they begin to go into great detail about everything that went on. John does this probably more than all the other three. But they begin to go into lengthy conversations and all kinds of eyewitness details of what was going on. And they really want people to know this. They're writing to an early church and they said, you need to know the facts surrounding the death of Jesus Christ. Because it's so important to the the theology and what our faith is based on and where we go from here. If you have your Bibles open, just follow along. John chapter 19, verse 1 says this, "...then Pilate took Jesus and had Him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head. They clothed Him in a purple robe and went up to Him again." And again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and officers or or, uh, officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside to the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, "Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him!" Shall I crucify your king?" Pilate asked. "We have no king but Caesar," the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now I have to be careful not to take just these sixteen verses and draw all kinds of conclusions. So. Later on today, or even as we're going through this series, it's important to keep reading the story in context and to go back and read 15 and, and uh, the, the, the different accounts all kind of fold together. But in short, I want to look at a few things that the text lends to us and we're going to go outside of John 19 to get some more insight on it in answering this question of who killed Jesus Christ. First, first person that, that might pop to, pop to your mind is Pilate. Interestingly about Pilate, though, as you read this, I mean, just in these 16 verses alone, without going back to 15, you see he's trying to set Jesus free. He repeatedly tries to do so. 1831, Pilate said, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. He's basically trying to wash his hands of this Jesus. 1838, listen to this. I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release one of your prisoners At the time of Passover, do you want me to release this king of the Jews? Looking for a way out for Jesus. Doesn't want blood on his hands. 19.4, look, I am bringing him out to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. 19.6, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. 19.12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Here's the point of this. His job was to sit in judgment on criminals. A professional person looking into people's eyes, questioning them. In our day and age, it would be that one-way, you know, or two, two-way 2 mirror thing going on. Little table. A guy sitting there used to questioning people, looking at him. He looks at him and he says, there's no basis of a charge for this guy to die. That's really, really important. Because it doesn't benefit Pilate one way or the other to say, essentially, this guy is faultless. This guy is sinless, and yet that's exactly what the Bible claims Jesus was, that he was the the faultless, sinless, perfect, unblemished Lamb of God sent to be sacrificed for sin. Here is a non-Christian person in authority, actually just couldn't care less about this, affirming what the Bible says about this, that Jesus was, in fact, faultless. Proverbs 29, 25 talks about fear. In fact, Proverbs in general talks a lot about fear. And as I think on Pilate, as I, as I think about him, I kind of see this man who kind of moves up to the edge. It's almost like he peeks over and he starts to look into eternity a little bit. I haven't had time to go back and listen to, to Dennis's message last week. But last week he's looking at truth, capital T, personified And says, what is truth? And he's engaging with Jesus Christ, God's own son, while he's talking about this. And at a couple different points, it's almost like he gets right up to the edge and starts to think really clearly about things. But you know what Pilate's problem is? He fears the wrong things. When you fear the wrong thing, your life gets really, really screwed up. Isn't it so tempting to fear what other people think about you? You don't think for me standing in front of a group of people, I'm cognizant, I'm aware right now of what people might be thinking about me? Kel prayed a really profound prayer this morning. God, you're, you would choose to use little Haley Smith to go down and be a blessing to orphans. And that is just it's awe-inspiring. It's humbling to be used of God. It's humbling to find yourself in a place serving God. Like all the rest of us, I could fall into the trap of fearing what people think. You know what Pilate did? He feared what other people thought. Don't you get tiny glimpses that he feared God in this? When he hears that Jesus had claimed to be God's son, it said he was even more afraid. Meaning he was kind of wrestling with his fears a little bit. Listen to Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man Will prove to be a snare. <clears throat> we'll talk more about fishing later, but last year we got skunked at this Yosemite campground. This year we were catching them like left and right. We ate fish left and right. You know what you do when you fish? You're trying to snare that thing. And I pulled the hook out of so many fish this week, and they were snared in all kinds of different ways. And you think about that little fish just writhing on the line. He snared, went after the bait. You know what? Maybe if Lucas will just give me a kudo or someone will come and pat me on the back and say, nice message, sir, uh, pastor, really enjoyed it. Maybe that'll just please me. Maybe that'll get me through the week. Man, that's going after the fear of man. And it's a snare. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Pilate feared the wrong thing. Here he should have feared God and not man. Instead, he inverted that and got himself into a world of trouble. Even though he gets whiffs of the divine, even though he kind of tickles on the edge of truth, he doesn't go there. He says, that's too inconvenient. That's too hard. We're not going to wade in that deep. Basically washes his hands and says, fine, the blood's on your hands. And he makes his judgment. Doesn't want to riot. Fears those above him. He has to report somewhere. It's towing the company line kind of a deal. And that's what he ends up doing. That word finally struck me so hard this week in verse 16. Look at it. Finally. It's like after going back and forth and all of this stuff, finally. Pilate just seems to let out a sigh and says, finally, he hands him over to them to be crucified. So Pilate certainly plays a part. Who's the them? The them is the Jewish people. This is the chosen people of God. The Jewish leaders that have been mentioned by name so far are Annas and and Caiaphas. And basically, as John's writing this account, you know what he starts to do? He starts starts early on implicating them. In this account, does Pilate play a part in Jesus' death? Absolutely. He had the authority to, to judge one way or the other. He played a part in it. But John's gospel writes in such a way as to implicate saying it's the Jewish leaders who are really responsible for what went on here. Annas and Caiaphas are representative of, a representative of the bad shepherds that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10. Remember talking about shepherds? That was a while ago now, but let me just refresh your memory. Listen to John 10:12. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man who runs away, the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This was Passover season. You know what Passover season was meant to be for Jewish leaders? It was meant meant to be a time to, to rally the people of God, to encourage them, to humble themselves, to remember They say the same God that led us out of Egypt, freed us from slavery, was with us in the wilderness, was gracious to us. We're going to remember that. Instead, this Passover season, you know what the, the bad shepherds do? They turn on the sheep. Basically, the shepherds are looking for comfort, safety, political status quo, keeping my little corner of the pie going. I don't want that disrupted. So they missed the work of God. Doesn't that sound a little bit close hitting to home? It's easy to look at someone else in Scripture and say, oh man, they were so devoted to their careers. It's clear their God was comfort. It's clear their God was avoiding controversy. It's clear their God was devotion to being upwardly mobile in their careers. Let's not hear the word and do nothing about it. If that sits heavy on you this morning, maybe your devotion, maybe your real religion, maybe your real passion are those same kinds of things. And the Holy Spirit is convicting you on that. Basically what it amounts to is selfish ambition rather than doing the work of God. Listen to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 verse 14 says this, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, if you've created a safe harbor for those places to just dwell and live, don't you see envy and selfish ambition in these Jewish leaders? Hey, that little, that little rabble rouser is getting a following. He doesn't even no jack. He came from a carpenter. He's not trained like us. He shouldn't be calling any shots. That's envy. And selfish ambition is to keep their careers going. If you harbor bitter, bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. Pretty clear on that? For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder, and catch this, every evil practice. You know what James is doing? James is shedding light on exactly what's going on here. The Jewish leaders have harbored bitter envy and selfish ambition in their hearts. And guess what they're doing? They're playing this truth out. There's disorder. Even in the, in the trial, there's disorder. You can see that. It's a rush thing. It's done at night. They can't get their witnesses straight. They're botching the whole thing. But they want to ram this through and get it done before there's a riot. It says there's disorder and every evil practice. When you turn that spotlight on the Jewish leaders, you see that's true. Now, so far we're safe. Pilate and Jewish leaders, uh, this is a little bit like your brother getting in trouble. You know, something's gone wrong and mom and dad are all over the two older brothers and you're just going, yeah, let them have it. That's right. They deserve that. Take their toys away and give them to me. You're fine with this so far. Here's the third one. The third person who killed Jesus is me. It's me and my sin. The Bible makes it really clear that all of us, both by nature and by choice, are sinful. You're born into a sinful mode. That's how it is. And if that wasn't enough... You then go, and I then go, and choose sinful things. Even non-Christians agree with this. You don't have to be a church-going person, a Bible-thumper, or anything. You just just get this. You know what the the phrase is? Here it is. Nobody's perfect. Right? Ever heard that? That's not said necessarily in churches. Church doesn't own a right to that one. I mean, religious and non-religious people get this really clearly. Usually, the person saying that is someone who just did something wrong, right? Right? Usually it's, uh, well, hey boss, no one's perfect, right? And it's kind of like appealing to the fact that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. People preach the Bible all the time without knowing it. People are sinful, God is holy. If you read the Bible cover to cover, one of the overarching messages about God is His holiness, there's all kinds of characteristics about God, but popping off of almost every page is the fact that God is holy. To understand that we're sinful as people, hey, nobody's perfect, and God is holy, there you see the gospel dilemma. How do you bring those two together? That's what the gospel, the good news, is all about. Some people use a bridge illustration, that the cross forms the only bridge possible for sinful people to come over and be in relationship with a holy God. As Christians, we sing about, we glory in, and we constantly remember this grotesque and most despicable form of punishment dying by, by, by crucifix, by, by being hung on a cross. Although it's been outlawed, it's still practiced. And some of the worst people in history, in terms of dictators who wanted to inflict disgusting punishment on people Hitler, Pol Pot, Uh, Others in the Sudan right now are practicing crucifixion. Most in the world would say, rightfully so. That should have been outlawed and banned long ago. Why is it that Christians sing so much about it? Glory in, remember, and embrace the shame and disgustingness of the cross. Why is that? Here's why. I want to read just some passages of Scripture. Scripture. And as I read these, I want you to listen most carefully for the word for, F-O-R. Because as we think about this, as we sing about this in a little bit, the why is that Jesus died for us. It was a substitute. It was Jesus in place of you and I. And so as we read these passages, listen for that word for Isaiah 53.5, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Verse 12 says, he was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of the many and intercedes for rebels. Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered over to death for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sin. For sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Galatians three thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's a substitute. It's him dying in place of us. Probably the most vivid picture of this is to think about this guy, Barabbas. And I've seen all kinds of gospel movies and whatnot, and that character is always in there. And they usually have him being ugly dude. You know, if you're being, if you're being cast as Barabbas, it's not really a compliment. They don't look for the good, good-looking good guy who seems really charming. So Barabbas is there, and he's despicable, and he's a convicted criminal. And the Jewish leaders say, Man, we'd rather have that guy than this one. And what a vivid picture to see Barabbas go free. And if you're there and you're an upstanding citizen, you think in your mind, but that guy's the one that caused the amber alert. That guy did something wrong and despicable. He deserves blood. Like Pilate, we can't even find anything wrong with this other one. This is not right. This is not fair. Something's wrong. To see Barabbas go free is to see you and I go free. That's the picture. That's why we don't ever want to take cheaply or lightly the cross, the forgiveness that's offered by Jesus dying on the cross for us. Remember Peter a few weeks back denying his Savior three times, blundering left and right? Jesus went and hung on a cross... And took his place so he doesn't have to suffer the punishment for those wrongs. That's you and I. As we think about blood and gore and the violence of Jesus' death, we're going to look at the crucifixion next week, and we're not doing it on Children's Sunday. Although I think it's really important, I think it's really important, and the Bible does too, to go into detail about what that is, and what that looked like, and what that felt like. I just want to point out two things about blood. I saw a lot of blood this week because of the fishing I did. And the kids all, I was with a bunch of boys. All the little nephews were around me, and we're catching fish. And, you know, you grab a fish, and, and uh, we brought home tons of food because we were eating fish till we were blue in the face. But we're pulling the hook out, and it's all good as long as, you know, it's an easy pull out. Once in a while, and a couple of those guys, though, they're writhing around, and it started getting bloody. And you know what happens when, when that goes on? Even boys, they love it to a point, but then they kind of go, Ew, you know, whoa, that's kind of gross. That's a little bit disgusting. As we went to clean the fish, some wanted to go, and some just didn't want to go at all. You know what this connection between blood and sin and forgiveness and singing about all of this stuff, being washed in the blood... You don't find that weird until you've not been a Christian and you join the church and you go, huh? That's really morbid and disgusting. Here's why God connects this in simple terms. God connects sin and blood to show us this fact. Sin always results in death. Hebrews says, it's really, says it really simply. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The second thing when you see blood and The disgusting nature of the cross and what you see painted there by the scripture. The the visceral, the the, the physical reaction you have to that. The wanting to turn away. the, The fact that some of you are queasy and not wanting me to talk about this anymore at all. That's how God feels about sin. You see, we're born in sin. And so it's kind of a stench that we're all always around. I think we get a little too used to it. But if you're perfectly holy and you can't stand even the slightest whiff of sin, then then that same disgusting feeling you have, that same sick to your stomach, turn away, I can't even look at it. That's God with sin. That's how He feels about sin. Not only can He not embrace it and live with it and invite it into His kingdom, He can't even look at it. That's why blood and sin are connected in the Bible. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Now while Romans, Jews, and people's sin all play a part, this fourth one's really, I would say, the, the ultimate responsibility for it. And Scripture couldn't be more clear on this, and that is that really it's God. It's God that killed Jesus. God the Father. Just from studying John, we know that Jesus was on an assignment. There's so many places I could go to. We're not going to go back and rehash the whole series here. But if you could, you would just find this steady drumbeat. On and on it goes. He knows exactly why he's here. I want to just play a highlight. Here's a, here's a little sample. John 12, 27. Now my heart is troubled and what shall I say? This is Jesus talking. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. He's talking about the cross. Then he says, Father, glorify your name. And in case you think Jesus is just talking to himself, here's what John adds, that it was audible to other people who were there too. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The Father and the Son are, on, are, are in cahoots here. There's an assignment going on. More than predicting his own, uh, his own death, Jesus was really putting on display. This is a premeditated plan that's being carried out. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment. And again, there's so many different places, but I want you to see this with your own eyes. As we read through Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, I want you just to listen for this premeditated rescue mission that was instituted by God. Verse 3, chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ, catch this, in accordance with His pleasure and will. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us, In the one he loves, one capitalized, talking about Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Catch this. In accordance with the riches of God's grace, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together Under one head, even Christ. Do you see even just from that passage, this is a plan being carried out? Sometimes you hear this big theological word that says that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. Part of where the the word atonement came from is from two words that brought together, say, meaning bringing together or making one. As Jesus atoned for our sin, he made one that which was separated. And sin always separates. It always divides. Bringing all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Verse 11 goes on to say that in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Bottom line is this. As you read commentary on what went on, and as you see the plan going out, it can be, you can't get out of the fact that this is God's will and good pleasure. Isaiah 53, verse 10, says, It was the Lord's will to crush him. You know what this psalm's about? It's predicting the suffering king that was going to come. This one that they mocked by putting purple robe on. They mocked by by twisting a crown of thorns and jamming it onto his head. Made play about the fact that he was a king. This suffering king was predicted 700 years before and said, this will be how my kingdom gets established. It will be the suffering servant who will come and establish it in a way that none of us would have imagined. New American Standard says, it pleased God to crush him. I don't know about you, but I just find that so difficult and otherworldly to try and understand. God initiated this rescue mission that involves sending his one and only son, eternal, glorious, pre-existing, to be shrunk down, humiliated into a package of a baby limiting himself, coming down into human flesh so that safe passage could be made for you and I to be in relationship with God Almighty. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what opens up new life to us, is to believe on that message and to place all of your hope on that grace of God. Hebrews 1.1 says this. Just listen. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, like this prophet Isaiah, who would tell us, this is how my kingdom will be established. In the past, God spoke through to our forefathers through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, catch this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You know what sat down implies here? It doesn't imply. It states it very clearly. It means this. Mission accomplished. Work done. Jesus said, I'm here on a plan. I'm on a mission from God. The Blues Brothers stole that from him, not vice versa. He really was. From the cross, what does he shout? It is finished. This was preordained. This was set up from eternity past as a way for you and I to come home. And the fact that he sat down, Hebrews is talking all about the the priestly orders, and he's saying, now we have a high priest unlike any before, and he sat down because the work is completed, it's over, it's paid for. We're good. I want to wrap up by answering this question, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is this that's going to come? We're going to look at his crucifixion next week. What kind of king is this that comes? And humbles himself and does... He goes left every time we think he should go right. And just when we think we're following with him, he just pops a U-turn and goes some other different direction. Read it for yourself in in the account of the disciples. I'll tell you what kind of king it is. It's the kind of king that doesn't settle. He doesn't settle for small things. Small vision. Low on the horizon kinds of sight line. It certainly isn't the kind of king that we really completely understand. There's a song by Bebo Norman... And it says this, I want a crumb, God give me a crumb, but you are a feast. I want a song, but you are a symphony. I want a star, but you are a galaxy. And I have resolved that I'm much better off in what you have for me. Don't you find your prayers way too small sometimes? We're settling for a king. Just give us some political respite, some some break from these Romans for a little bit. That's all we ask. God says, I'm not going to give it to you. Trust me. There's way more that I'm going to give to you, but you're not getting that. Dad, please. Can we have a little licorice rope? Not when there's haagen in Yosemite Village. Trust me. You can choose to take the licorice rope, but look at my eyes. Trust me on this. Don't take it. Because you take that, you forfeit later. Okay, Dad, we'll trust you. That's what God's saying here. That's what Jesus said here. I'm not here to establish a little kingdom that's going to go away when you die. Got something much bigger in mind. Here's what kind of king we have. We have one who gives us a clear conscience. I could just paint such a picture here, but I'll pick three things. We have one who gives us a clear conscience. This is what the cross accomplished. Listen to Hebrews 9.14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Colossians 1.22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We also have one who clearly shows us his pursuing love. You know what? When you see the cross, the reason we sing about it, we're going to sing about the mighty power of the cross in a moment. We're going to sing about the old rugged cross and how instead of despising its shame, we cling to it. We cling to the old rugged cross. You know why? Because in the cross is the greatest single act of love and demonstration of love ever displayed. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Galatians 2.20. He loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 5.8. But God shows us his love. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Same author as we're looking at. 1 John 4.9. This is how God showed his love among us. Here it is. Ready? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice at one, bringing us to one with God the Father for our sins. Thirdly, and I'm just going to read a passage of scripture. If you're still in Ephesians, you can turn to chapter 4. But thirdly, it's the kind of king who opens up to us a new world of possibilities. In light of the love of God, you can read a passage of Scripture. Or in light of feeling tired and burdensome, you can read a passage of Scripture. I hope that as we close with this, and I want the band to come on up, I hope that this won't be burdensome commands or a list of rules. But I pray that you'll hear this passage of Scripture right here as a brand new world of opportunity and possibility opened up for you by the way of the living God. Because I don't know how to do with this Scripture Passage tells me to do in the flesh. I can't pull it off. I get tired and sick of trying. But when you start to see the fruit of the Spirit come out in your life, and in your spouse's life, and in your children's life, and in your neighbor's life, and in your co-worker's life, celebrate it! That's the Spirit of God at work in them. You know these people. They're wretched, like you. They can't do that on their own. Listen to Ephesians 4 starting in verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Man, that looks like the world I live in. Verse 20, You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit, benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, Just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment? The kind of king that we have is the kind that opens up a brand new world of possibility, such that what I just read can become a reality. This putting aside of the parts of us we hate and don't want to do. And this putting on of the kind of virtue and character and moral strength that we long for. God, we desperately need you in our midst every day and every moment. We celebrate, God, that as we started this morning, there's power in this word. It shows us who we are, but most importantly, it shows us who you are. And Father, I pray for those in this room who perhaps have a false hope of being made right with you. Maybe through upbringing or teaching or reading or possibly even just thinking. There's a sense that if we do enough right things or generally a good person, will be made right. God, your word clearly shows us we're cursed we're under the curse of the law unless we keep it perfectly and we all know nobody's perfect except Jesus and so right now I just would invite those of you in this room who want to pray and receive Christ, receive this free gift Romans tells us clearly you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved God we cling to that today we praise you for that today just now in response to what you've just heard and seen from the scriptures I would just invite you to pray to sing. We're going to take up the offering as a part of our response in worship this morning. Right now, let's just respond to the message we've heard. And Those of you who are in the family of God, thank Him for what you've just heard. Those of you who want to talk or pray with someone, I'm sitting up near the front. I'd love to pray with you. We have community group leaders and elders in this room that would love to pray. Women of God who would love to put their arm around you and be the arms and shoulders to cry on of Jesus here in this place. Let's just worship him as we respond right now.